All right, so we are continuing in our series, Kiss the Sun, this morning, back in the book of Psalms, and we are looking at Psalm 11 this morning. The title for this message is, If the Foundations Are Destroyed. So we've looked at 10 Psalms so far, and it seems to me that the most common theme that we've looked at is refuge. And lo and behold, that's going to happen again today. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at three things. The voice of fear. Second, the Lord sits in heaven. And third, the Lord is righteous. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you uh, that you indeed are sending people out to bring the gospel to people around the world. Uh, We pray for Corinne this morning, Lord, that you would bless her efforts. Um, Father, we ask that you would help her to raise the support that she needs. And as well as she goes forward, that you would be with her every step of the way. And that you would uh, use her to bring about uh, a harvest in Cambodia, that many people would come to know you as Savior. Lord, we ask that you would touch our hearts this morning as we hear the word, that you would open our eyes to see your truth, and that we would grow in grace and knowledge of you. Bless our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read Psalm 11. Uh, It has a heading, The Lord is in his holy temple to the choir master of David. So this is written by David. Verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. Let's look at the voice of fear. Fear is a constant foe, right? It's definitely not a new foe. Uh, Throughout the ages, we see a constant fear that the end is coming at any moment. And maybe you can relate to that, you know, especially right now. And any time you turn on the news, you might feel like the end is nigh. I want to read an article to you from the Evening Telegraph, a Philadelphia newspaper. Fearful thunderstorms, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions both by land and sea, tornadoes, and inundations have followed each other with scarcely any intermission. And at this moment, there is widespread mourning in every one of the four quarters of the world we inhabit for immense losses of life and property occasioned by these convulsions of nature. The article continues, uh, elaborating on the typhoons hitting places like Puerto Rico, Great storms hitting China, Japan, and elsewhere, fires in the West, and even solar obscurations. And that's a new word for me, so I'm going to use that in every sermon from now on. (laughs) Obscurations. The writer continues by stating that all these terrifying events have convinced the learned that the cosmic shell upon the outer surface of which we live, the vast system that embraces it, and even the ethereal spaces beyond, extending for myriads of millions of leagues into the Milky Way, are now undergoing some peculiar vicissitudes. Active readers are aware that upon the year 1867 has been concentrated a full stream of prophecy from seers of every creed and nationality. 
and that dozens of them insist upon the certainty of a general cataclysm in the heavens and on the earth to come before New Year's. This article with the headline, The Year of Terrors, was dated Friday, December 6th, 1867, and it went on to explore the certainty of the end of the world by the end of the year. Now, of course, I read this somewhat in jest. I could have pulled clips from a myriad of articles warning that the end of the world was nigh. I could pull articles from this week uh, likely uh, predicting the end. In every age and every generation, there have been people warning that the world is going to end quickly, that it's upon us. And certainly as believers, we live with an eye towards what is to come. We, we should be looking forward to the end. But what we see in Psalm 11 and what we see in warnings such as this article is not people living in hope of the future kingdom of God. It's people living and embracing fear of the unknown. People given over to their fear. The article I read from spoke of natural terrors, the physical foundations of the world being shaken. And if you look at news articles today, if you look at social media, if you just are you know, crazy that way, um, you'll see headlines of our foundations being shaken. Although they tend to be more specifically about politics and um, moral systems. And yes, even the natural. Uh, we hear constantly that the world, you know, we've got like 10 years left before everything's gone. I don't know what the, the climate change headline is right now. Um, but the point is, in all of this, as far back in history as David's time and even beyond, we have been uh, faced with tremendous upheaval uh, as the things that we fear loom large over us and we give in to that fear thinking that the end of the world is right around the corner. When you look at Psalm 11... It seems that what this person is uh, saying to David is that not only is the end of David's life looming, but the end of all existence is looming, at least towards the upright, towards the righteous. There's kind of a sense of give in. Let's reread these first three verses here. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So David is quoting someone who has said this to him. We're not sure who that speaker is that is counseling David to flee here in these first three verses. It might have been an enemy, uh, as one author described an enemy hoping to ensnare David in an ambush, but I think it's more likely that this was an ally, an advisor, or perhaps even a friend. Uh, someone who was close to David who was giving in to his fear. And so the voice of fear says to flee, to run away, hide. The, the counsel that David is receiving is coming from someone who expects the worst. David sees two possible responses to this counsel. To give in to fear and to flee. Or to trust God and find refuge in him. Now there are others we see in the Bible when faced with great difficulties. They did flee. They gave in to the voice of fear. Adam and Eve, they fled and hid themselves from God. 
King Saul saw the hope of his dynasty falling to pieces as the kingdom was promised to David. And eventually the people uh, actually cried out for David to be made king over Saul. And so he decided that he was going to take matters into his own hands violently. And he pursued David. We see Jonah fleeing the opposite direction of Nineveh. And we all know how that went. If you don't, uh, just go to gracelifeavon.com. We had a series on that recently. Israel and Judah, both throughout their history, time and time again, giving in to fear and fleeing. Now, the interesting thing about all this, and you're going to be aware of this as we've talked about David at times on the run throughout the, the last 10 Psalms, he did at times flee. He lived on the run from Saul. He lived on the run from the Philistines. He lived on the run from his own son, Absalom. Yet perhaps the key difference is that even at times when David was on the run, he trusted in God. He was shaken at times by the circumstances, trials and difficulties that faced him. They didn't disappear, those trials. But when facing them, he sought refuge in God. And he refused to take matters into his own hand to make things right. Even at times when he had the opportunity, Saul was right in front of him and he could have easily taken Saul out. He trusted the Lord instead. So the deeper concern behind this call to flee in Psalm 11 is that at the heart of this call is um, really a, a call to give in to fear and believe that all is lost. That somehow in the midst of all of the trouble, God is not who he says he is. What is underlining this fear of calamity is that God is not sovereign, that he's not on the throne, and David, he just doesn't care. To respond like this is to trust in the sufficiency of one's own self, to believe that God is not near and not involved in this, and so it's all on me. It's all on me, so i got to take care of myself. This counselor to David is saying, David, your God is not going to help you, so you might as well well fly away to that mountain like a little helpless bird. After all, the foundations of our society are crumbling, and only you can save yourself. And David's response is actually given in the first line of the first verse. In the Lord, I take refuge. And this is a reoccurring theme. We've seen it constantly uh, from David and from the other writers of the psalm, that God is our refuge. Why do we keep going back to it? I think it's because we are inclined to be independent and self-sufficient people. And this is the state of our flesh because of our fallen condition. We view the idea of taking shelter uh, perhaps as a weak posture. We, we, we run away from any uh, appearance of weakness. And, and so we want to be strong and, and independent and self-sufficient and, and figure it all out on our own. So we need a constant reminder to turn from our self-sufficiency, to take refuge in God, to rely on him. The idea presented in this psalm is that whether it is due to evil from outside forces or perhaps even from our own doing, we will find ourselves in a position where it appears like the foundations of our lives are crumbling. We'll be tempted to give up and flee. Perhaps literally to run away and live in self-exile, to live in isolation. Sometimes that's appealing. 
But notice that the reminder here that David gives is not be strong and fight. The reminder is to seek refuge in God. God is on the throne. He is sovereign. And the idea of fleeing into the mountains and depending on yourself, uh, depending on your own strength, is to be rejected. And David hears this counsel, and he's incredulous. The second part of his response is essentially, how can you say that? How can you say that about my God? David knows God is sovereign. He knows it deeply and personally. And so how can you say otherwise? For the believer today, the call is the same. Find your refuge in God. Yes, as much as we don't want to hear this, you are weak and desperate need of his protection. Both in the sense of knowing uh, our our physical state, that you and I are weak. Uh, We need to depend on him for provision, that all good things come from him. And also that we are totally, utterly helpless to save our own souls. We need a refuge. We need a savior. There are so many troubles today that could be behind the voice telling you to give up and flee to the mountains. You know, again, I could probably fill 15 pages of of things to talk about this morning. And so I did that. (laughs) No, just give a basic summary. We face the threat of pluralism. We see a plethora of competing cultural identities uh, fighting it out in opposition to our faith. This presents itself in an ongoing assault on Christian values. The voice of fear may be saying uh, in that to give up. Maybe you're tempted even just to say, what's what's the point? I'm just going to go along with the flow of things. I'm going to go along with the crowd. It's not worth the fight. Or maybe, on the opposite side of it, you're tempted by cultural isolationism. Placing barriers of isolation around ourselves to preserve our way of life to preserve ourselves from the onslaught of cultural pressure that is constantly knocking at the door. I believe that finding refuge in God does not mean isolation or escape. Refuge doesn't promise a life free from difficulties like persecution or suffering. In fact, these things will happen. Rather than withdrawal, I believe the Lord offers us his steady, sovereign protection in the midst of the storm. In the midst of the onslaught, he will be with us no matter what we face. And we can live as light in a darkened world because Christ will strengthen us to stand right where God has placed us. So what was driving David's confidence returning to our passage today? Well, He looked above the billows of tremendous cataclysm, threatening his very existence to the one who sits on the heavenly throne. We see in verses 4 through 6 that the Lord sits in heaven. And let's listen to this calm confidence that David has in these verses. Starting in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David is confident that no matter the enemy, no matter the trial, God will not be toppled from his heavenly throne. And this confidence in God's power gave him an assurance that unless God willed it, David would not be toppled or removed from his earthly throne. Nor would he lose his life at the hands of his enemies. 
until God ordained it. Though the enemies may be powerful, God is all-powerful. And what a wonderful truth to hold on to. He is over all and sees all. Nothing escapes his gaze. No matter what it is that you're going through, this should give you assurance that God sees it. Nothing is going by unnoticed by God. But he's not just all-powerful, and he's not just in heaven observing. He's also near. So whatever you're facing, he sees it, and he deeply cares about what you're going through. Not just in general, you know, not just what humanity is going through, but what you are going through. We can be filled with hope. While God is, on heaven, is in heaven and sitting on the throne, he is also near and his desires for his people. And not only is he on the throne, not only is he near and compassionate, but Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and now lives to make intercession for us. As Charles Spurgeon, uh, the famous preacher, wrote about Psalm 11, verse 4, The heavens are above our heads in all regions of the earth, and so is the Lord ever near to us in every state and condition. This is a very strong reason why we should not adopt the vile suggestions of distrust. There is one who pleads his precious blood in our behalf in the temple above, and there is one upon the throne who is never deaf to the intercession of his son. Why then should we fear? What plots can men devise which Jesus will not discover? Satan has doubtless desired to have us, that he may sift us as wheat, but Jesus is in the temple praying for us, and how can our faith fail? What attempts can the wicked make which Jehovah shall not behold? And since he is in his holy temple delighting in the sacrifice of his son, will he not defeat every device and send us a sure deliverance? I hope that encourages you this morning. Jesus died for you and he lives again. And right now he is interceding on your behalf. The father not only delights uh, in, in just you know, that broad brush of righteousness, but he delights in you because he delights in his son. And you, as a believer, are in his son. Therefore, we can be assured that uh, anything that we go through has a good and godly purpose in it. And God is not absent from it. Doesn't mean that nothing painful or difficult will never occur. It, it will. And when it does, God is working it out for our good. Verse 5 of this The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It can be difficult to get the whole picture of what David is saying. Uh, so let's try to unpack this. Um, it could be better said at the beginning there the Lord tests the righteous. Um, it could be better said as the Lord tests both the righteous and the wicked. David, in writing this, immediately focuses on the Lord's rejection of the wicked, seen in verses 5 and 6, while the results of the testing of the righteous are not seen until verse 7. This testing is tied to the idea of the Lord seeing in verse 4. So what David is saying is that the Lord sees, he perceives, he, he knows, uh, and, and understands fully all that he sees. And he examines or tests and, and knows precisely what the testing is revealing. 
And this idea of testing is the same as uh, maybe you've heard described as proving. Zechariah 13 verse 9 talks about this. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. Then they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So there's this, there's this idea of um, like gold and silver being put through the fire to reveal what is truly there, to prove it. And this graphic prayer of David, uh, though a bit difficult for us to reconcile, um, is, is really David saying to God, look and see and understand both the righteous and the wicked. It's hard for us to reconcile this, though, because we know from 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. But here, God is said to hate the wicked. These words are God-breathed, and so we shouldn't dismiss them. Though they do sound like a very human emotion, uh, these are words that the Holy Spirit intended for us to have. So we don't want to just explain it away. Uh, God stands adamantly opposed to evil. He stands adamantly opposed to sin and wickedness and those who use violence to oppress God's people. The wrath of God will fall on such. So keep in mind, though, that uh, God's wrath, or as David puts it, his hatred of the wicked, it's not pitted against his love for his children. We often view love and wrath or love and justice kind of like a teeter-totter as one raises maybe his love that his wrath lowers. Um, And yes, I'm totally ripping that off from uh, gentle and lowly. Um, But perhaps the best way to view it is that they rise and fall together. When God pours out wrath, uh, his love is not disappearing. It's actually because of his love that he pours out wrath. He's holy and just, and he demands that wrath falls on the wicked. But God's love protects his own from that wrath. So when wrath falls, we should look to see who's being protected in the midst of it. His wrath falls on all those who are opposed to him and to his people, his children. In verse 6, we see some pretty intense images of what this judgment and wrath looks like. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This reminds the reader of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, scorching wind, uh, maybe it's not something we're familiar with. In uh, Middle Eastern countries, they're very used to the idea of a scorching wind as it blows across the land, bringing about unbearable heat and destruction. And the cup is a symbol of wrath throughout the writings of the prophets. Uh, We even hear it in Jesus' prayer in the garden when he asked that the Father would remove this cup from him. He wouldn't have to drink fully of it, but nevertheless, your will be done. It's easy to look at the judgment on the wicked, such as Sodom and Gomorrah or Israel's enemies, and we see the intensity of the wrath. But again, I want to call your attention to the opposite side in those moments. Who is being protected? We tend to focus on just one side when looking at judgment. But there are two sides. When the wicked are being rejected and bearing the wrath of God, God's chosen are being protected. 
And this is most clearly seen in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He bore the full outpouring of God's wrath. He drank the entire cup of God's wrath to protect who? That's right. (laughs) Josh went. (laughs) To protect those who would be saved. If you're a believer, to protect you. And so this is the prayer of David for the wicked, that they would be tested and that the proof of their wickedness would be this judgment. And that the proof for the righteous would be that they would be uh, safe in the refuge of the heavenly king. This wrath then is the portion for the one who rejects Christ. Those who don't, as Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, stir his anger and will perish in the way. Those who reject Christ will perish in the way. So when faced with tremendous fear because of the wicked and the temptation to flee, David looked to the one seated on the heavenly throne and prayed for God to move on his behalf. For God who sees to intervene. That when tested, the wicked would be seen for what they are and that the righteous would be secure. David had great confidence that God would work and that whether in David's lifetime or not, justice would ultimately prevail. So David prays, knowing that whatever the Lord does, even if he doesn't rescue him in that moment, because God is the only one who is truly righteous, what he does will be just. And that's what we see in verse 7, that the Lord is righteous. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. So as I said, the Lord sees and tests both the righteous and the wicked. We've seen kind of the proof or the results for the wicked. Uh, But what is the result or proof for the righteous? It says at the end of verse 7 that they shall see his face. But as I was thinking about this this morning, I think maybe the better way to say it is, you know, what, what is revealed when the fire or the testing comes for the believer? What emerges is Christ himself. What is seen is Christ That's what will be revealed in the testing. But either way, testing is coming. David's hope in Psalm 11 is not really in being rescued from these circumstances. His hope is in seeing God. If God doesn't move and and heap judgment and wrath at that precise moment on David's enemies, David still rests knowing that he'll see God. How does this connect with us today then? In a world that wants nothing to do with God, where culture embraces wickedness more and more, and where it really does seem like our foundations as believers are being shaken, we look to Christ, who is our refuge. And Jesus is seen all over Psalm 11. David trusted in the promise. He was looking forward to a coming redeemer. He was looking forward to Jesus in his first advent, his first coming. We as believers now, we both look backwards and forwards. We look backwards because Christ has indeed come. But he will come again, and so we also look forward. Jesus is our refuge. We look back at his atoning work on the cross, which is completed. It is finished. And we rest in him. We rest in that eagerly awaiting the day of his return when all his enemies will be made his footstool. 
all his enemies will be fully and finally subdued. All enemies brought under his feet. Our refuge, Jesus Christ, he's our defender, our victor. And one day we will see the completion of that victory. So we don't look forward to the end with fear. We don't give in to the fear that this article that we read at the very beginning has for us. We look forward with hope. Eagerly anticipating and awaiting his return to make all things right. Hebrews 10.13, the author writes, Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. John Calvin writes, We shall at length enjoy the fruit of his victory. Yeah, when our foes, Satan, sin, death, and the whole world are vanquished. And when corruption of our flesh is cast off, we shall triumph forever together with our head. So Jesus is our refuge, but Jesus is also our foundation. Where in Psalm 11, we see the foundation shaken. Jesus is the rock, and the rock will not be shaken. Even if the figurative foundations of the world crumble and collapse, he will not. As well, Jesus is our righteousness. He alone is truly righteous. And we, who are not righteous, need a righteousness that is not our own. 1 Corinthians 10.30, Paul writes, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now I'm going to read a good bit here from Martin Luther. Um, I was remiss in not mentioning last week that uh, last Sunday was Reformation Day, and so we had our reform card pulled from us, and so we must earn the reform card back. Um, So I've quoted John Calvin, and now I'm quoting Martin Luther, so I think we're good. But Martin Luther called the righteousness that we need an alien righteousness. And what that means is that it's a righteousness that comes from another. He writes, through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. This is an infinite righteousness, and one that swallows up all sins in a moment. For it is impossible that sin should exist in Christ. On the contrary, he who trusts in Christ exists in Christ. He is one with Christ, having the same righteousness as he. It is therefore impossible that sin should remain in him. The righteous, this righteousness is primary. It is the basis, the cause, the source of all our own actual righteousness. For this is the righteousness given in place of the original righteousness lost in Adam. It accomplishes the same as that original righteousness would have accomplished. Rather, it accomplishes more. I love how Martin Luther says all that he has become, all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. Kevin Maloney said it last week that Jesus is our reward. We will see him because he has given himself to us. Luther continues by quoting Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. To us, it says, because he is entirely ours with all his benefits if we believe in him. As we read in Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will he not also give us all things with him? Therefore, everything which Christ has is ours, graciously bestowed on us, unworthy men, out of God's sheer mercy, although we have rather deserved wrath and condemnation and hell also. 
Jesus has given us himself. And so he truly is our refuge, our foundation, our righteousness, and our reward. He is all. And what areas of your life do you feel upheaval today? Where does it feel like the foundations of your life are crumbling? I encourage you today, find refuge in Christ. Despite all the billows of suffering and the crumbling of the foundations, if in this moment you need strength, and you do, if you need that strength to withstand, he is your strength. He has given you all things, all that you need. He's given you himself. He's your refuge, your foundation, your righteousness, and your reward. Believer, he is yours. And you are his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are seated on your throne in heaven. And that you rule over all. That you are all powerful. And you will not be defeated. We thank you that Jesus has conquered death and sin. And one day will make all his enemies his footstool. We pray that you would comfort us in the midst of difficulties. Help us to know and to trust in you. Let us not be given over to our fear, but rather let our hearts be filled with your love and your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the hope of your son, Jesus. We ask that you would help us to spread the reason for that hope that we have to many and that they would come to know your son. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.